community property is almost a, a safety net by making sure that if a spouse does not work, that they still have a 50% interest in any of the assets that were generated during the marriage. to the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, I feel like I always say I'm doing well. I mean, maybe one of these times I should shake it up and be like, I'm doing horribly. <laughs> Every, everything is terrible. Just just to mix it up. That, that would be depressing. I, yeah, it would be. Maybe we'll just use different uh, different adjectives. We're yeah. fantastic. We're phenomenal. Phenomenally. I'm doing phenomenally. Mm-hmm. That That is different than well. It certainly conveys a different level of goodness. I'd say so. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I'll mix that in occasionally. <laughs> It'd be like the, the optimist's version of mixing it up. I like it. I like it. You know, I have to say, I've got, uh, <sighs> I think you jinxed me. So last night I go to my bathroom and I go under my sink to get my wipes and I noticed that some of the things under the sink are a little wet. And I noticed that a couple days ago too, but I thought, oh, it's just cause you know, I'm like washing my face, my hands are wet, whatever. I'm like, all right, this is two, three days in a row now it's wet. I need to start pulling things out. So, you know, and under the bathroom cabinet, it was just everything shoved in there. That's the next thing that needs to be organized. But so pull everything out, all wet under the sink and I'm like looking and I see like crusty stuff under the sink so water's obviously been linking so get Stephen to come in and sure enough our sink is leaking so at first I thought it was a pipe issue and I was gonna say Brent you jinxed us with all this leaky pipe talk lately <laughs> so it's the sink so okay you didn't you didn't jinx me there but I'm starting to go down the same boat that you are. I don't know water's leaking out of my walls, so I'm not at your level, but <laughs> yeah. something not about this yeah, not yet. water. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot of stuff, but one of the things that I've learned through most of our plumbing issue problems uh, has been water in the wrong place in your house is bad. Very bad. Yeah, it's very bad. So, well, I hope that it's only in like the cabinet. It's not like in the walls or insulation or anywhere else that would require ripping things out and cutting holes and doing all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. So, so far, so good. It looks like we can just put some JB Weld and seal it up again. And we'll see if that does the trick. But that was my first thought was when I went to my husband, I'm like, hey, are you ready to do a bathroom rebottle? Because I think it's time for us to finally check this off the list. <laughs> yeah, you said you wanted to organize it anyways. What better opportunity than this? Yeah, just pull it out, pull out the whole sink, pull out the cabinet, pull out the tub, completely redo it. It's on the list at some point, so might as well, I guess. I agree. I agree. I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. Why are you waiting? <laughs> yeah. Did you did you want lightning to literally strike you or? It's just the, you know, costs money. Oh, like, money. That's, yeah. that's something, our, doing a bathroom remodel, I have heard from several people who have done it themselves. Don't do it yourself. Like it is, <laughs> like once you start, you're like, oh my gosh, why did I ever try to do this myself? 
So I know that one's definitely going to be a, we're hiring a contractor and they're just going to get it done in a week rather than us trying to do it over a period of like two to three months. So. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. As a good friend of mine is fond of saying, Rome was neither built nor financed in a week. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how most home improvement projects work, too. Mm-hmm, for sure. <laughs> well, talking about uh, homes and property and things you own with significant others. I thought that uh, a, an interesting topic to talk about, something that we've we've danced around a little bit. I don't know that we've really addressed it directly. We've kind of danced around just a little bit, the topic of community property. And so I thought, you know, let's talk about community property uh, because it's a very special sort of thing. It has some special little nuances to it. They don't, you don't have it in every state. Uh, so depending on where somebody lives, it may be some totally foreign concept. Uh, it has some little tax weird things that that exist in the community property realm. So I thought, oh, let's talk about community property. So if you're uh, if you're game for that, I say that's what we do. I like it. You know, that was actually one of my favorite classes in law school. It was my community property class. Really? Perfect. Yes, it you're, was. I found was, the right person to talk to then. I will say that was ages ago. But yes, it was one of my favorite classes. And you're right, community property, it's, it's a really interesting topic. So community property, when we're just starting off on what is it at a base level? So there are nine community, I believe there are nine, eight or nine, community property states in the US. Arizona is one of them. And when you are a single individual, you are not married, then all of your property is your separate property. You own it outright, 100% you. If you live in a community property state, then from the moment that you get married, all of the property that is generated between you and your spouse is considered community property going forward. Unless you had a prenuptial agreement that says otherwise, or unless you have a postnuptial agreement that says otherwise. But if you don't have any of those, the standard rule is the moment that you said I do and you're done at the altar, then any assets that you have generated afterwards are community property. So what that means is community property is that both of you have a 50% interest, one half interest in that property. So when you think of all the assets that you generate, so your income, right? You take home a paycheck. That's 50% yours, 50% your spouse's. Your retirement, a lot of people don't think about that, right? When you think, oh, well, it's my job. I take home the paycheck and I contribute to my 401k. Nope, all of that is considered community property. So your retirement, if you have stocks, bonds, any investment accounts, if you own property, anything that's acquired after the marriage going forward is gonna be community property. Now there is a little small exception to that rule, and that is if someone gives a gift to you, um, if you receive like an inheritance that is typically considered separate property. Um, there also can be rules if someone gifts you an item, then you know they can specifically say it is separate property, not community property. So there are some exceptions to the rule, but the general rule is anything after marriage is considered community property. And I, I always like to go back and think of why and the, the reasoning behind this, because a lot of people think of community property as this kind of newfangled, weird concept. And why did we even come up with it? The reason that we have community property is because we think way back in the day when it was 
you know, years and years ago, decades ago, it was very traditional that only one spouse was working and one spouse would stay at home and take care of the family. And when you have that situation and then you've got one spouse who creates all the income, one spouse who doesn't, and there's a divorce, then one spouse has all the assets, one does not. And so community property is almost a, a safety net by making sure that if a spouse does not work, that they still have a 50% interest in any of the assets that were generated during the marriage. So when you think about that, it, it makes sense why you have community property. So um, again, that's that's kind of how community property works from the anything that you've owned as a single individual is going to be separate property going forward in marriage, community, you each have a 50% interest in that property. Yeah, and there's a real quirky historical byline to that, which is at least again just historically. Don't don't say that. Don't don't accuse me of forgetting about what happens currently. But at least historically, um, these community property rules came out of the fact that states used to be under Spanish rule or the rule of the Mexican government, which obviously their legal system came through uh, the Spanish legal system, and the community property was a Spanish property concept that then sort of just got adopted in to state laws. And so a lot of the set you think of like Southwestern states, you know, Texas and New Mexico and, uh, and Arizona and California, these were like traditionally community property states, all these states that were in what used to be Mexico. And so we retained that in those states because we're a, we're a federation or a republic, right? You got independent states that make their own laws and their own property laws. And then we have a bunch of other states that come from a part of the country that wasn't necessarily part of Mexico, and they run more their marital property laws through the old English system, which is the sort of common property, uh, his and hers property system. And so we have this divergence in the country, and it just comes from this weird historical quirk. And there are there are actually a couple of states, aside from the nine, like there's the the nine that uh, have community property as, as sort of a blanket uh, rule. And those nine are for anybody who's bored and wants to know is uh, Arizona, California, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Washington, and then Wisconsin is this little outlier sort of out there on an island in a sea of uh, common law states. It's out there. And then there are a couple of states that have said you may elect to have community property. And so Alaska was the first to do that. Uh, Tennessee has that kind of a law, as I understand it. And uh, I believe last year, Kentucky joined those ranks. So now there's like these three where you can elect into community property if you want to do that. And when we start getting into some of the tax stuff, I think people will be like, ah, that's why. Um, that uh, that sort of corticopia of a smattering of uh, states then makes up the the community property as as a a basic proposition states and then in addition to that some states have a law that basically says if if a couple lived in a community property state, they acquired community property, and then they moved to our state, even though our state is not a community property state, will allow them to keep that property as community property inside of our state. So for example, you know, very kind of close to home to us, Utah has that kind of a rule. Colorado has that kind of a rule. So if somebody lived in Arizona, you know, if a married couple lived in Arizona, they accumulated community property here. And then they moved to Utah. When they moved to Utah, they can bring that community property and keep it as community property in Utah for Utah law purposes. So there's, again, there's this sort of 
weird patchwork of community properties, the default, there is no community property, or then something in the middle that says you can, your community property can travel with you into our state. I don't know if that's a, we're trying, they're trying to encourage people to move from communities, property states or not, or if it's just a matter of convenience, who knows, but that's, uh, that, that's the patchwork of weird community property rules that we live under. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, with community property, like you said earlier, Brent, we've, we've touched upon this topic in, in previous podcast episodes, um, but we haven't really dove into all that it means, especially in, in tax, um, in the tax sense. First, I think, you know, it's good to just cover the first basic with which we've kind of covered before in a previous episode, which is, you know, with community property, like I said, each spouse has a 50% ownership, one half interest in the property. So when the marriage ends, the community has ended. And so there's no more community property that's being generated. So if a couple is uh, happily married, ooh, something bad happened. Now they're getting divorced. The community has ended. There's no more generation of community property upon the filing of divorce. Then at that point, again, any property that they go forward generating is separate property. And that's kind of how people will hear all the time when sadly, when couples go through divorce and you say, oh, they took half of everything. Well, because you lived in a community property state and they had a, a they were entitled to their legal ownership of 50% of the property. So it's you know not a bad thing there. That's just what they're entitled to get. Um, so that's typically how people hear of community property and um, how they, they're kind of, their knowledge of the issue. But what's really- The, the anecdotal uh, disgruntled ex-spouse knowledge, yeah. Pretty much, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what's really interesting and in what, um, how we really see community property playing is with the issue of basis. And we've also touched on the issue of basis in several earlier podcast episodes, but where basis comes in is that first, let's just kind of explain what basis is for anyone who hasn't listened to those earlier episodes. Um, but so every uh, piece of property has a set basis. So let's just do, for example, a house, okay? When you purchase a house, let's say your house was $100,000, all right? That's your purchase price. You got a ganga deal on it. Then when you pass away, uh, your house is now worth $200,000, right? You did all those beautiful bathroom renovations. You did a kitchen renovation. It's worth a whole bunch of money now. Well, you see the difference in the $100,000 and the $200,000. That $100,000 was the original basis. But when you die, the house would now get a step-up in basis. So then let's just say the next day your kids sold the house. They don't have to pay $100,000 in capital gains, right, from that difference there. So community property plays into this concept of basis and how it kind of all plays together. So with community property, both spouses have that 50% interest, all right? But when the spouses pass away, they get a 100% step up in basis on each spouse's death. So let's just say we've got John and Jill. Sadly, John passes first. Now that house that was originally 100,000 is now gonna be $200,000 basis. When Jill passes away a few, year, a few years later, and let's just say the house shot up to $300,000, now the house has a $300,000 basis. So having that community, and, and again, this is if that house is titled in, as community property, it is considered community property. So that's how powerful things, uh, playing with the basis can really be with community property states. 
yes, absolutely. And there's a, you know, sort of illustrate the point of how powerful this is. Let's say that you you change the hypothetical. So so in your hypothetical, John, the husband, uh, he owns this house as community property. It really doesn't matter if it's John and his wife together as community property on the title, as long as it's community property, like in your example, it works the same. But let's just let's sort of change the facts just a little bit. Let's assume that it's it's John and his wife, whose name I've now totally blanked on. Uh, we'll give Don't her a forget name. about Jill. Jill. I'm so sorry, Jill. Um, <laughs> John and Jill, thank you. Uh, <laughs> poor Jill. <laughs> She's going to unfollow us. <laughs> um, so John and Jill own the house, not as community property, but as joint tenants uh, or tenants in common. In some states, they have this wacky thing called uh, tenancy by the entirety. So, but they're all basically similar. Okay. So, but we'll just focus on the joint tenants thing. Very common to own houses between spouses as joint tenants, and then usually it's joint tenants with right of survivorship, meaning when one spouse dies, the title transfers immediately to the surviving spouse. Okay, super convenient. Um, the tax effect of that is that when one spouse dies, as a default rule, the tax rules say that spouse, assuming that they were a citizen, they owned 50% of the house. And so if they die and they're treated for tax purposes as, as if they own 50% of the house, you get it in a step up in basis for 50%. So in your hypothetical, they, you know, they buy the house at 100. John dies when it's worth 200. Uh, there's a 50% basis adjustment. So there's a $50,000 increase, and then there's $50,000 that doesn't get increased. So now the basis is 150. So if the house is sold the next day, there's $50,000 of capital gain, uh, you know, not including any sort of exemption for personal residences, et cetera, that, you know, nobody needs to remind me of, I get it. Um, but, you know, just hypothetically here, there's this $50,000 of capital gain that's sort of left over because it was titled as joint tenants. And with joint tenancy, when one spouse dies, the presumption is the house is owned 50-50 for tax purposes, and you only get an adjustment on 50% of the title. Okay. That is why, you know, given that little context, that is why the community property element is so powerful. Because with community property, it's almost as if when when the first spouse dies, John, in our hypothetical, uh, they own 100% of the asset. And so therefore you get a 100% basis adjustment. And so, and you can flip that into any kind of asset that's a capital asset. So like houses are a common one, but another common one would be like investment accounts. You know, that Coca-Cola stock that's been sitting around for 20 years, that kind of investment where if it's owned in a joint account, you get this 50% basis adjustment, but if it's owned as community property, you get a 100% basis adjustment. So it can really compound across different asset classes and make a huge difference. Now, one little thing to point out, and I, you know, if you were going to point this out already, and I'm jumping the gun here, I apologize. So just tell me to shut up halfway through my sentence if that's true. But one thing to point out, because you you had teed up the idea of retirement accounts as community assets, this basis rule does not apply to retirement accounts. Uh, the basis rule only applies to assets that would generate capital gains and retirement accounts. They don't generate capital gains. They generate ordinary income. Uh, and unfortunately, even if it's a Roth account, uh, it's the same rule. But the upside to the Roth account is when the money comes out, it's not taxable anyway. So it doesn't really matter what the basis was. Um, but all retirement accounts fit into that category, all like annuity policies, uh, like a deferred annuity policy that's been earning income inside the policy that would fit into the same category. If you had a life insurance policy that was earning income inside the policy that could be taxable, 
same category. Anything that would be ordinary income uh, does not get this basis adjustment. So I just want to like give that little caveat because um, we kind of had teed up that issue and I don't want anybody to be confused by it. No, that's a really good point. I I was not about to say that. So you're, oh, I didn't yeah. cut you off. I didn't cut uh, you off there. I'm relieved. <laughs> But that's a really good point to uh, to to you know really sit on for a second and, and think yeah like all the different types of property that someone owns right and we've we've seen so much in in our experience just random pieces of property that then we start researching and, and figuring out more of and so when you really think about you know when was an asset acquired uh, it's also really a, kind of going back a few steps to what I was saying earlier you know community property is anything acquired, anything generated from marriage, right? But it can also be property that was acquired before marriage, but community effort was expended for that property. So let's just say, for example, uh, John and Jill own a business here in town. Uh, Jill started it before the marriage. She's a successful entrepreneur. Good for her. Um, when they got married, John decided, hey, it's such a successful business. I'd like to help the family business out and I'm going to join in too. And the moment that that has happened, John now starts to have a community property interest in that business. He's expended. He's he's making sure um, the outside of the building looks great. He does all the maintenance. So he now has an interest. So that's really, you know, another little kind of tidbit to point out when you really start thinking about all the different classifications of assets and whether or not you can get a little bit of community property um, kind of interest attached to any of them. Absolutely. And this is all with a very large exception that should be noted, I think, which is if the couple has a properly and enforceably drafted and signed prenuptial agreement or even postnuptial agreement that says we are not going to have community property or community property is not going to apply to certain assets, then the community property rules will not apply to them or those assets that they've picked. So you can short circuit these rules. These are basically a default rule. You can kind of short circuit these rules by doing a prenup or uh, or doing a post-nuptial agreement in some cases. So to, to your example, let's say that Jill has this very successful business and Jill wants to get married to John, but Jill is thinking to herself, I like John, I think everything's gonna be great, but I really don't want, if there is a divorce, I really don't want there to be a big fight where he can claw out of me some amount of this business. And so in that case, Jill and John could have a prenup that says, we are not gonna have community property apply to us, or we're not gonna have community property apply to this business. You know, So it can be everything, it can be part, you can do kind of in between, but commonly it's, we're not gonna have community property apply at all. And then when you have that agreement, again, if it's properly done and enforceable, if they get a divorce, then Jill is protected. Jill's business is protected, even if John had, uh, you know, worked for the business or worked in the business or or supported her and what she was doing or, you know, provided some other services for the business, even if all that happened upon that divorce, if they have that properly drafted and enforceable prenup that says otherwise, John will have no interest in the business. The business is Jill's. So that is a fairly common way that if these if these rules are sounding to anybody like, wow, that's harsh, um, that's a really common way that couples then try to protect the property that they're bringing into the marriage from the very long reach of the community property rules. Yeah. And one thing that I was really surprised to learn when I took my community property class all those years ago in law school was, you know, on, on the 
the topic of having a prenuptial or postnuptial agreement. And, you know, when you think about marriage, while we love marriage and love is love and it's happiness, um, it is a property arrangement is, is really what it is. It's two couples coming into an agreement about all of their property and their assets. And so when we're looking at all of our, our property, when you when you're trying to enter into a, like you said, a, a properly prepared postnuptial or prenuptial agreement that is enforceable, one thing that is really, really tr- like really, really recommended, I can't stress that enough, is that both uh, spouses have their own counsel. And which is really, you know, crazy to think that if you're planning your wedding and everyone's so happy and you can't wait, oh, let's also talk about this awkward issue of I want a prenuptial agreement. And by the way, we also both have to pay for our own attorneys. But that's you need your own independent advice. You need an attorney who is solely going to have your best interests at heart. And so you need to have two separate attorneys that then can negotiate this property agreement. That's that has that's that's really how it needs to happen. It's hard to say it's a requirement that both spouses have their own lawyer, but mm-hmm. it's it's recommended. Yes, uh, I think is the point there. And yeah, it can be a, a sensitive topic. There's no doubt about that. Um, and you know, someone listening to this might be like, well, that's really not practical because you know, when I got married, I didn't have two pennies to rub together. So what would what would the point of that agreement have been? And like, yeah, I get that. So yeah, there is a there is a practical element to that, uh, which really is why those sorts of agreements and those sorts of arrangements are much more common with spouses who are coming into a marriage of some means so that there's a there's a payoff. There's a there's a plus in the plus minus columns for spending the money to get one of these things, these prenups put together properly. Yep, exactly. So, all right. So then on this issue, Brent, I want to tee this up for you now. So we live in the great state of Arizona, where especially right now it's January, we have tons of snowbirds as far as the eye can see. They're all over the roads, right? And let's just say our lovely snowbirds decide, I love Arizona so much. I want to move here full time and be a full time uh all year around resident. Um, and I used to live in, let's just say South Carolina or Georgia, a non-community property state. How does all that work now? Well, when they moved to Arizona, the Arizona presumption actually applies to them. Uh, so if they got a divorce, Arizona would presume that their assets are community assets. We would sort of start from that premise and then you can prove otherwise afterwards. So you can sort of start to pick pick back at that premise by saying, well, you know, we own a house in Charleston and that house is in his name and not her name. And, and, you know, South Carolina, or uh, South Carolina law says that that's not a community asset, but there's at least a presumption that when you move to Arizona and you're married, that everything you've acquired during your marriage is a community asset. Okay. If, uh, then that couple say came in to see me and they, they say, yeah, we did estate planning in South Carolina. It looks really great. But now that we're here, we kind of want to touch things up. We want to have a a new estate plan. Usually we'll talk about community property. I'll say, well, this is how community property works. This is how the the estate planning is usually done. And then we'll talk about this basis rule. And if we decide, you know, it would be really nice if it was crystal clear, absolutely crystal clear without any question that all of the assets are community assets, uh, then we'll... 
proper advice, then have them sign an agreement saying all my assets are now community assets. So it's all 50-50 between us so that they can be sure when the first of them dies, they're going to get the benefit of this basis rule that you're describing. Or if they had, say, originally acquired their house in Arizona as joint tenants, that it's not going to be treated as joint tenants when one of them dies, even though they're living here because they had foolishly titled it as joint tenants unknowingly. So they do a do an agreement to say everything we own is community property. There are pluses and minuses to that, obviously. Uh, if they're happily married and they're never going to get divorced, then it's not a big deal. Uh, if there's a possibility they could get divorced, then the spouse who brought less into the marriage is gaining more from that agreement than the spouse who brought more into the marriage because you're effectively making everything 50-50. But that, that is fairly common planning for snowbirds who move to Arizona uh, and they need to kind of update documents. And one of the updates is let's just make it official and make it crystal clear that everything is community because that's the default rule in Arizona. That's the presumptive rule. And there's no reason to have any gray area on that issue at all. So you might as well just make it official. And so we fairly commonly make it official. Okay, then I'm going to throw another one at you. All right. So Jack and Jill from, or John and Jill, sorry. That's why it sounded weird to me in the very beginning. John and Jill. John and Jill from South Carolina has moved out here to Arizona. But while they love to be Arizona residents full-time, they don't think they really want to be here in July and August. That's just a little too hot for them. So they're keeping their house in South Carolina. What do you think about that idea now? There's 100% nothing wrong with doing that. Uh, totally legal to do that. Um I don't know why you would prefer to spend your summers in South Carolina than in <laughs> <That's> Arizona. <true. laughs> but, At least there's um, a beach close by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll just assume it's like uh, Hilton Head or something, right? It's like <laughs> it's on the beach. It's very pleasant. Um, that that presents an issue. So things that can easily pick up and move can be easily converted into community property. Things that are intangible, they go wherever you go. So, you know, bank accounts, investment accounts, wherever you go, that's where they live because those are intangible assets. Uh, you can't pick them up and feel them. However, real estate cannot be picked up and moved. And so real estate is stuck where it is and it is subject to the laws of the place where it is stuck. And so at least theoretically, the place in South Carolina would continue to be subject to the rules of South Carolina and not the community property rules in Arizona. So the place in South Carolina is not going to get the benefit, as a general proposition, is not going to get the benefit of the community property rules and this community property basis issue you've teed up, even if we do an agreement in Arizona saying everything we own is community, because South Carolina is not Arizona. South Carolina governs its own real estate. South Carolina... South Carolina law then applies to that real estate in, in, in theory. And I think in very good theory, that's the outcome. All right. But there's something we can try and do, right? So one little method that we could try is by creating a partnership. Is that right? Well, yeah. Okay. So let's say I explain everything I just explained to you in the immediately preceding iteration of this hypothetical. And John and Jill were like, mm, that's nice, but it's not quite good enough. Is there any way that we could potentially get the benefit of community property, this cool community property basis rule that Rachel has lovingly explained to us, but apply it to the South Carolina property? 
The answer to the question is possibly yes. Uh, I can't say 100% yes because there isn't express IRS guidance on the topic. But what the IRS has said in other contexts with respect to a an interest in a partnership that is a the partnership interest uh, being a community property interest, an interest in a partnership is that when one of the spouses dies, even if the other spouse is not named as a partner in the partnership documents, when one of the spouses dies, 100% of their interest and the other spouse's interest in the partnership gets a 100% basis adjustment, okay? So this is like the thing you own in the partnership is an interest in the partnership, okay? That's at like the top level. They call that the outside basis. Then inside the partnership, the partnership might actually own assets and those assets have their own tax basis that is not the same necessarily as your outside basis, your interest in the partnership. So there's a tax election that can be made. It's called a 754 election. And when you make that 754 election after somebody dies, it causes the partnership vis-a-vis the successors to the deceased partner's interest in the partnership to have an increased, a stepped up basis inside the partnership on the partnership assets. Okay. So now the outside basis and the inside basis are the same. So let me let me give you a, an example. This is just an easy for easy numbers. So let's say John is a partner in a partnership. It owns real estate. Uh, his share, it's his share of the real estate basis originally was $50 and his outside basis is $50. Then he dies and his interest in the partnership is worth a hundred. So Jill gets a hundred dollar outside basis in this partnership interest that John had. Inside the partnership, his share of that real estate still has a $50 basis until and if and only until the partnership makes one of these timely 754 elections. If the partnership does, then it will adjust the basis in this real estate from 50 to 100 for Jill. So that if the partnership sells the real estate for $100, Jill will have zero capital gains. Very similar to the example we were talking about with like the house. Okay. You just have to go through this extra tax step because there's a different, there's an extra layer of the partnership in there. And there's a, there's a revenue ruling, um, that the IRS issued in the 70s and uh, it's revenue ruling 79-124 for anybody who wants to check my math. But uh, this revenue ruling says this is the result when a partner has a community property interest in a partnership and you make the 754 election, the the succeeding surviving spouse gets this full outside basis adjustment plus with a 754 election, they get a full inside basis adjustment. Okay, so let me so let me sort of change the hypothetical a little bit. Let's assume then that John and John's son are partners in a partnership that owns the house in South Carolina. So John contributes the house in South Carolina to the partnership. Maybe son puts in some cash, doesn't need to be too much probably, but puts in some cash or at least enough cash to sort of cover some of the bills for the for the house. And John dies. John is a resident of Arizona. John's partnership interest, it's an intangible asset. So it exists wherever he exists. It gets a 100% outside basis adjustment. And then the partnership makes a 754 election. Well, this revenue ruling 79-124 says the partnership makes a 100% basis adjustment on the real estate for John's interest. So that if they then sold the house, 
the partnership then sold the house, the partnership would have this increased basis, almost as if John owned that house as community property. Uh, so let me take kind of two steps back on that. I fully recognize that what I just described probably sounds, first of all, like it's fantasy and makes no sense to some, some folks listening. So I apologize for that. There's really no way that I can make the partnership tax rules less complicated. <laughs> and second, um, there's no, there's, as I say, there's no direct IRS guidance on this particular issue. So I think you'd have to be, if you were going to kind of do this and hope that it actually works the way you want it, I think you really need to run the partnership as a real entity. You know, they need to respect that it exists. It needs to have its own bank account. It needs to keep its own books. It needs to pay its own expenses. You need to actually deed the house into the partnership, those sorts of things. Um, but assuming that it's a real partnership and it's respected as a partnership for tax purposes, at least this particular revenue ruling 79-124 suggests that the outcome is the way I just described it. So it's a possibility. And for some clients who are inclined to try, we will set up structures like that. See, that's all the fun stuff that I like. That's the complicated, let's, <laughs> let's play with the rules. That's the fun stuff. Yeah, I don't like to stick my neck out too far on the chopping block. I don't think that particular transaction is uh, aggressive necessarily. It just sort of, it, it is, there is a little bit of a gray area because as I say, the IRS has never specifically ruled on that particular set of facts and whether the IRS would agree with that is another thing. I can't control the IRS, so I can never tell anybody what the IRS would say when they haven't told me. Um, but at least when you read the rules, again, assuming that it's a real partnership, it's not, it's not a fraud, it's actually run like a real partnership, those sorts of things. Um, I think you probably can get that result if it's properly done with, you know, that huge caveat at the end, it's properly done. Um, because I'm assuming when I say it's properly done, that means the IRS agrees with you or the, or the U.S. tax court agrees with you, right? If it's properly done, the IRS agrees and the U.S. tax court agrees and you get the result you wanted. Exactly. And that's the question at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's always, it's always the question, but yeah, there's, there's a, uh, there's always an interesting little interplay like that when you have a couple to your point with this, with this, uh, hypothetical who moves into a community property state of number one, how, if at all, if they want, how can they avail themselves of the benefits of community property, at least the tax benefits, excuse me, of community property. And then is it possible for them to stretch out the reach of community property outside of the state of their residence? And so, you know, these kind of partnership structures are a way potentially, again, if done right, and the IRS agrees, et cetera, that you can kind of stretch out the benefits of the community property laws into another state. I love it. All right. Well, I can't remember anything else that I learned in my community property class so many years ago. <laughs> we got all of it. That's great. <laughs> well, considering you teed this up as you didn't read, it was so long ago, you couldn't remember any of it. Uh, I, I'm impressed we got this far. So, <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's leave it there. That's uh, for everybody listening. Thank you for listening. And uh, that's your, uh, that's your allotment for this week, but uh, we'll, we'll, We'll keep running these things through the mill and, and keep pumping out episodes. And hopefully there's good information that everybody's getting and, and they're enjoying it. And if they are enjoying it, uh, you know, you're welcome, I guess. And if you're not enjoying it and you have suggestions, then just let us know. We'll always try and improve. But Rachel, uh, I very much appreciate your time and expertise and knowledge and help. So thank you again. Yeah, of course. It's been a pleasure. 
Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.